This podcast brought to you by Hope 103.2. The Hope Book Club with Katrina Rowe and Natasha Moore. Because life's just better with a book. Thanks for pressing play on Hope Book Club with Katrina Rowe and Natasha Moore from the Centre for Public Christianity. In episode 26, we are reading pandemic books. It had to happen. Hamnet by Maggie O'Farrell is the story of Shakespeare's 11-year-old son who died during a plague. But the story takes the focus off the famous bard and puts the spotlight firmly on his wife, Agnes. Station Eleven by Emily St. John Mandel tells the story of a nomadic group of actors who have survived a devastating flu pandemic that wiped out civilization as we know it. We're going to talk about Natasha's brand new book, The Pleasures of Pessimism, on why we love to expect the worst. And I've just listened to an Audible original set in the current pandemic. Caroline Overington's The Cuckoo's Cry is a domestic thriller set in this current crisis. So that is all on the way in our pandemic-themed episode of the Hope Book Club. Let's start things off exploring a story set during a plague. It's called Hamnet by Maggie O'Farrell. This book tells the little-known story of Shakespeare's 11-year-old son, Hamnet, who died during a plague. But it's not really a story about Shakespeare. In fact, the bard is never named in the story. Instead, it focuses more on his wife, Agnes, an unconventional and spirited herbalist with almost mythical qualities. Natasha Moore is here from the Centre for Public Christianity. G'day, Natasha. Hey, Katrina. How are you doing? Can you believe we're still Zooming? Didn't you think that we'd be finished Zooming by now? I miss you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, look. I am fascinated by the idea of this story and I find it really interesting that Shakespeare isn't really featured. Instead, his wife Agnes is more of the main character. Can you tell us a bit about her? Yeah, I think she's really the selling point of the novel, to be honest. Um, I liked her a lot. Uh, She's this kind of slightly odd, um, unconventional, wild woman. She loves the forest. She loves nature. She's a bit out of place in her local community. So we we know very little about Shakespeare, about his life. We have just kind of these residues in the record. Um, and all we really know about Agnes, I think, is that she was 26 and he was 18 when they got married. And um, apparently a lot of the scholarship has been very like, oh, it's this kind of older woman who snares him when he's just a callow boy. Whereas actually... This tells a very different story to that. Um, She's this, like, actually quite incredible woman and they have this complicated but quite beautiful love story and she's forceful and fascinating and she does have kind of, I mean, I want to sort of say she's a witch. That's not how it's couched, but Mm. she knows things. um, She sees things about the future, about the people around her. As you said, she's a herbalist. She can kind of heal people but not in a magical way and she has this very rich inner life Um, she's very likable Um, and really the whole story is about grief so and her grief as a mother in particular from losing they lose their 11 year old son Mm. look that that sounds really interesting to me because in other portrayals I've heard of her I think probably just when touring places in the UK was that you know she was kind of dragging him down and you know that (laughs) that she was a somehow the dead weight in the relationship. So I would really love to read, a, you know, a different story about her. The title Hamnet is also intriguing, obviously very similar to the name of the play Hamlet. Does it yes. draw any connection between the two? 
Yeah, so I think this is the this is the germ or the kernel of the story for O'Farrell um, that apparently Hamnet and Hamlet are kind of the same name. Um, they're used interchangeably at the time. So, you know, we've apparently, I didn't know this, but <laughs> a lot of people know this, that we know Shakespeare had a son called Hamnet who died. Mm-hmm. A few years later, he wrote Hamlet, the play, coincidence I mean maybe but like if you lose a child like to use their name even in a different form like what does that mean and I, I don't think it's immediately apparent if you if you think about Hamlet the play um, you wouldn't think that it's kind of a meditation on losing a child or anything um, but the the novel works quite hard to um, you know just just kind of right at the end really it just gestures in some directions on uh, the staging of Hamlet for the first time Um, and how that may have been Shakespeare kind of transmuting somehow his grief and his loss uh, about his son uh, into this, you know, enduring work of art. So I don't think, like, that's not kind of crucial to the plot or anything, but I think it does frame it in a way that makes you care about these people and their story and their family 400 years ago and what they went through. Do you think? There is a Shakespearean sort of quality to the writing or are there Shakespearean themes that emerge throughout the story? Uh, I mean, it's beautifully written and it is. it does kind of draw you in. I, I don't think if it were, were not about Shakespeare, I would not, Shakespearean is not the adjective mm. that I would use. Um, it's quite, uh, you know, there's a sort of impersonality to Shakespeare in some ways. And this, on the contrary, is sort of a very personal, domestic, intimate look at, partly at him um, through her, through Agnes's, his wife's eyes, um, and her understanding of his genius, um, you know, ahead of his understanding of it, actually. Mm. Um, So contrary to that kind of story that you were Mm. um, saying gets told, it's really her that kind of sees his potential um, in this version and kind of encourages him towards his vocation, I suppose. Um, uh, But it is a very, it's very much a kind of family story Mm. um, about her relationship with her children, her complicated relationship with her husband who she loves but who is, you know, away fulfilling his potential in London, um, writing and uh, acting in these plays. So it's, I think in that sense, very different to Shakespeare. And and I think it is an interesting choice, as you pointed out, that um, he's never, we never hear his name. We know who he is. Everybody else in the novel is named, but he's always the husband or um, Hamnet's father or Judith's father or the son, you know, the in-laws next door. The Latin tutor, I heard. The Latin tutor, (laughs) yeah, which is how they meet. He's tutoring her um, brothers in Latin. I mean, Um, the impression I'm getting from you is that it's almost the opposite to Shakespeare in in that so many of Shakespeare's plays focus on big historical events, grand scale mix-ups, you know, mistaken identities. And and this Mm. is almost coming right down to the micro level of, you know, very small household relationships and domestic dramas. There are a few moments where it kind of broadens out. So, you know, part of the theme of the novel is about the plague coming to town. And there is a point where uh, the narrator zooms out and you see how the plague comes there. So we go from kind of North Africa and a particular story of a monkey and this boy and that transmission and these people in Italy and blah. Um, and it gives you this kind of bird's eye view 
which is again still intimate like you meet these kind of people along the way and it has that kind of historical contingency feel to it um if this particular thing with this particular person hadn't happened at this point then this 11 year old boy in stratford mm. would not have died so you know, there, there are elements of that, but I think the the most successful thing about the novel is really the kind of interior world of Agnes and of the children. Okay, so who do you think would enjoy this book? I think fans of historical fiction. So I'm actually, I'm not sure that that's me. <laughs> like I enjoy, I think back to about like, so any earlier than Jane Austen, I think I get a bit like, oh, do you have to tell me so much about like agricultural practices and like <laughs> yeah. and how people washed at the time? Like I kind of, I, I care in theory, but I find often that kind of narration tiresome. But I was really drawn in by the characters um, and the beauty of Agnes and her relationship to nature. So I think people who would enjoy that kind of feminist take on Shakespeare, people who enjoy a historical fiction, um, and I, I guess just people who enjoy a well-written um, well, it's a dive into grief, so you have to kind of steal yourself for that. I definitely cried quite a bit. Okay. And, look, if you if you love Shakespeare, that's just the cherry on the top, isn't it, really, as well? Yeah. You know, I, yeah, I, I, I could... think if you're a Shakespeare fan, this is probably, you know, you need to add it to your list. Mm-hmm. Well, that's got me intrigued. Now, your next choice is a book that also features a pandemic, but this one seems to only get fabulous reviews, like really enthusiastic reviews. Station Eleven by Emily St. John Mandel. Okay, Alexandra said, picking up an earlier conversation. So when you saw the computer screen in Traverse City, what about it? In Traverse City, the town they'd recently left, an inventor had rigged an electrical system in an attic. It was modest in scope. A stationary bicycle that when pedaled vigorously could power a laptop. But the inventor had grander aspirations. The point wasn't actually the electrical system. The point was that he was looking for the internet. Station Eleven by Emily St. John Mandel. This is a post-apocalyptic novel about a Hollywood star who has a heart attack on stage during a production of King Lear. Very Shakespearean, that part, Natasha. We're here for the Shakespeare links. (laughs) Shakespeare's and plagues. (laughs) And look, this just happens to be on the night that a devastating flu pandemic arrives and wipes out civilization. This book has been described as a firecracker of a novel, as soul-quaking, audacious and darkly glittering. It seems to make a really big impact on its readers. Natasha, did this make a big impact on you as well? Absolutely. I mean, to be fair, <laughs> I read this book. I, I, It's been on my shelf for a couple of years. I've been meaning to read it. I got it at a kind of book club Christmas party kind of thing. Um, and the week that I decided to read it was the week that we went into lockdown in March um, where we, you know, were kind of like, oh, are we going to work? Are we working from home? Oh, no, everything, you know. <laughs> um, that's when I read about <laughs> this civilization-ending flu pandemic, which was either the perfect moment or absolutely the wrong moment. But I really, um, so I think I found it extra enthralling, but it probably doesn't need that to be enthralling. Like those reviews are right. It's it's a really amazing, gripping, enjoyable read. But 
you know, now that you have actually lived through a pandemic, I mean, we've been in this for a lot longer than when you read it. You know, do you think it was like relatable? Was it on the money in some aspects of what would well, happen? Well, so I, I guess because it was early days, there was a sense of like, oh, it, could it could it look like this? But also, even then, it was obvious, I think, that we're not talking about the same thing. You know, this is a novel about um, if you're going to write a novel about kind of an apocalypse, it's got to be huge, right? So mm. it's it's really not the beast that we are dealing with. Um, it's a like a pan- it's a flu strain that kills. Um, almost everybody who gets it, like 99% of Earth's population dies. It's highly contagious. You get it within a few hours, you die the next day um, or the same day. So we're not really talking about the same thing. Um, (laughs) In the novel, like when I say civilization ending, like there just aren't enough people to, and there isn't enough knowledge. They like, there's no more um, petrol. There's no more um, internet. There's no, like, there's nothing. They're back to subsistence. Well, tell us, um, tell us more about that, what the world looks like, you know, post-pandemic in, in Station Eleven. Because mm, the there are different time settings in the novel. So, you know, it kind of begins, as you said, on this night when the flu pandemic kind of begins. Um, but it goes back in time um, to give you some of the uh, characters' backstories, um, and mostly it's kind of set 20 years after the pandemic um, when what you have, so it's not kind of the immediate fighting for survival stuff. You get a little bit of that as we go along, but mostly it's 20 years later um, and we follow these characters who are part of this travelling symphony. Um, who You know, they go around to the isolated settlements um, of survivors who still exist, are kind of like scrabbling their existence out, um, and they perform Shakespeare. People mostly want Shakespeare um, because, uh, and it's a quote from Star Trek actually that they have on their, um, uh, painted on their vans. Uh, It says survival is not enough. Um, The reason that the Travelling Symphony exists is because survival is not enough. People want the best of what was there before um and it brings kind of a little bit of the magic back of and so it's it's really interesting to read because it's looking at our own civilization um our own experience of life and society through the eyes of all of that being lost like all of it it kind of it gives you this weird nostalgia because you're nostalgic for things that you have you know there's there's a lot of phrases in the book that are like the last cappuccino or Two weeks after the end of commercial air travel, or wow, you know, all That's these become things where you're like, Whoa. prophetic. How do these um, future fictional characters view the era that we are living through, or perhaps the era we're living through just before COVID hit? <laughs> mm. Well, one of the most interesting things is that um, it depends very much how old you are, right? So, one of the main characters was only eight years old when it happened. Um, so, you know, she was she was there, like she experience these things but she kind of like it just gets a bit eclipsed so she kind of goes I I feel like when you used to open a fridge a light came on is that true did that really happen Mm. like am I imagining that and you know there's no way of kind of like you know she can ask older members but it's a very different experience if you were 20 or you were 40 when this happened to if you were a kid where essentially those memories she can't remember a mother's face like this is her existence now. So I think they do look back on it in a kind of magical way. There's a character in the novel who is, you know, part of a community that they just ended up 
at this airport in the middle of nowhere. And so they stayed there because there's nowhere to go. Um, and he set up a kind of museum of civilization where all the things that are now useless, like credit cards and um, stilettos uh, mm. and car engines, um, he kind of puts them out as exhibits um, that it's this sort of monument to the life that was and that's kind of fascinating to them but just so completely useless. Mm. Like literally these things, these objects have no use. What are they left with? What's valuable to them in this new existence? Is that what the where the arts comes in? Yeah, I guess that kind of sense of, well, we are still human. There is still goodness to humanity even in, in spite of the trauma and what everyone's been through and some of the really... Uh, horrible things that happen that a lot of them are trying to block out. There is some kind of drama and conflict. There's a um, there's a prophet figure. They go through a particular town um, where they had left members behind who are having a baby, and they were, they've come back a few years later and they've come to pick them up, but they're not there. And everyone's a bit on edge. There's kind of a sort of cult situation happening. Mm-hmm. So there are these sorts of um, you know that there's current drama as well. It's not just all like looking to the past. But, yeah, there's a lot of sense of, okay, well, what what makes this life worth living? And actually cappuccinos is not what makes life worth living. As people need to are. know this, right? Um, yeah. Because <laughs> there's a um, lot of people confused about that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, I love do they have tea? Cappuccino. Do they have tea in this world, Natasha? Because I don't know if oh. I can go there if they don't have tea. Oh, I do not recall. There are interesting things where they kind of, um, if they're going through remote areas, there are still houses that haven't been touched and they'll go through and kind of find things from the old world. Do you think a tea bag would still be? Oh, yeah. 20 I mean, years later? It'd be stale, but if it's all yeah. you've got, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it'd do. <laughs> well, this has really got me fascinated. I, I, yeah. you know, I wouldn't have thought that I would want to read a book set in an apocalyptic pandemic right now, but you're painting such a great picture of this. And the reviews I read were just so enthusiastic. I, I rarely find you know such glowing reviews for a book. What do you think makes this novel such a treasure? I think the premise is fascinating. Um, you know, we all love a collapse of civilization story, right? Um, it really puts things into perspective and helps you to see um, more clearly what our lives are like, what our society is like. Um, and she really delivers on that premise. It would be easy to do that, you know, oh, there are some good points, but like, meh didn't really reach its potential she really delivers mm. um and also I really loved her writing and her like the psychology of the people in it um there's this wonderful um passage about the irritations that all the um symphony members have with each other um and it's just so human you know that they're kind of surviving this massive thing and eking out this existence but also like people have their petty grudges and squabbles and that's you know that that's life that's that's the that's human nature um so I kind of I believe her you know um and and I think one of the one of the things I really love about these sorts of books is when um things happen and the way that things unfold everything that happens you go I didn't see that coming but it absolutely would be that way I see that yeah so when when it's surprising but still believable Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah, and she nails that, I think. So I really I really recommend it. I think everyone would enjoy it. If you're feeling really anxious about 
COVID right now. It might not be the time or it kind of might be the time. I don't know if it would be therapeutic because it might make you go, oh, okay, we have a government that's operational. That's nice. You know, <laughs> like we still we still have coffee. Like, and petrol. I mean, it could really yeah. put things in perspective, right? Yeah. 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 I agree. Well, that book sounds awesome. Now let's talk about another awesome book, Natasha. Your book, The Pleasures of Pessimism. Firstly, you have just won the Christian Book of the Year Award for 2020. And I believe on the same day, is that right? (laughs) On the same day. The next day. Okay, the (laughs) next day launched a new book. Now, honestly, don't you think you should give someone else a turn? Uh, you know how um, it's 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 like buses. You know, nothing happens for ages, and then three they come all come at once. once. That's yeah. right. <laughs> no worries. Hey, um, so you've called the book "The Pleasures of Pessimism," um, which you know sounds a little bit like you're promoting pessimism. Uh, in, <laughs> what, in what sense is pessimism pleasurable? Mm, I think in quite a lot of ways we enjoy our pessimism. Obviously, there's. Um, there's some anxiety and pain that goes along with thinking that things are going to go off the rails and that everything's terrible and getting worse. But I think actually you look at our clickbait habits, you look at the way we write headlines, you look at um, the sorts of movies and books that we consume and are obsessed with, um, there's something enjoyable about all this, about imagining the end of the world as we know it. Um, And I think partly, you know, they are kind of fascinating stories to think about. Um, partly it's maybe kind of a, um, a way to exercise our fears, um, to imagine the worst case scenario and therefore to kind of deal with that, like that in your head, um, safely, um, or even to motivate us to kind of do something to make sure that that doesn't happen, that our future doesn't end up like that. Um, but I think also there's something about imagining the worst case scenario that for us is a way of thinking through how life is now and how we wish it were different. You know, so a lot of these kind of post-apocalyptic scenarios, um, everything's terrible, but also you, you have a lot of realisations about what, what life is really about, what we're really like when you strip away all the kind of trappings of civilization. Um, and there's something appealing about that to us. We, we want to understand those things. Um, and they're, they're almost a way for us to work through, well, what are we missing in the way we do life together now? How could we fix it? I think you see that in, you know, COVID quite a bit. It's exposed fault lines in our society in ways that we're like, oh, yeah, I don't know if we want to organise things that way. Maybe we can do better and use this crisis as like a catalyst for that. Mm. So so when you were sort of starting to think about this idea, like when did you hit on this sort of sense that oh, I think there's something happening here that's sort of permeating popular culture? What sort of brought this onto your radar? I think the very first trigger for me was <laughs> one of my favourite writers is Marilyn Robinson um, who wrote Gilead and, and a few other novels um, and she's written some wonderful essays uh, and she had this one paragraph where she wrote that cultural pessimism is always fashionable um, and that there are always good grounds for it, um, which is the fact that we're human. So, you know, you can always be pessimistic about culture because humans, right? But she also kind of talks about how it's a threat, um, that that it 
uh, it undermines our ability to hope and our ability to kind of make things better um, in society. And that actually there are always as good grounds for optimism as for pessimism. And actually it's the same grounds because we're human. Um, we have, you know, the same capacities as we've always had to actually regroup and for altruism and to, you know, work towards justice and goodness and so on. Mm. Um, so that was kind of a trigger for me that I was like, oh, we are a pessimistic culture, aren't we? Like we used to project utopias. We used to imagine ways that, hey, the future's going to be bright and amazing. Um, and we don't do that very much anymore. We're more with the post-apocalyptic um, and, you know, partly for obvious reasons, right, with uh, climate change and now this pandemic. But we've been pessimistic for a lot longer than that. Yeah. And I mean, it's almost a pessimistic question to ask in a way, but is all this pessimism, you know, do you think it's causing problems, Western society? Is it having some negative effects? Yeah, I I do think so. So I, I try to see the positives. I think there are some potential positives to some pessimism, and I think there's a healthy pessimism about, for example, human nature. But um, in the book, I go through kind of, uh, I call them the sort of four horsemen of the apocalypse, that um, these uh, four kind of threats to us uh, caused by our pessimism. Um, and one of them is uh, polarisation, that I think that our pessimism has become very, um, you know, it's not just that everything's going off the rails, it's, the, it's their fault. Mm. And if it weren't for them, it'd all be fine. And so I think that fracture, like it's it's exacerbating um, the divisions uh, between, you know, left and right, but it's not only left and right, um, generations and, you know, religious and not religious. And, and, and when we um, are pessimistic in a partisan way like that, I think it actually makes it really hard for us to work together to make the future better. We get kind of apathetic, we get fatalistic, we get, you know, negative. We'd rather that things go down the toilet than that we be wrong. Yeah, because you know, we can blame them, you see. It's a, we yeah. need to blame them. We need to, yeah, I can see that that's an issue. There's a self-righteousness to that that's really tempting and really kind of satisfying until mm. it's not, of course. So what do you see then as the antidote to pessimism? Like what can we do to counteract it? There are practical, you know, particular things, I think, um, but then there's also sort of overarching things. Um, so uh, I think in terms of the practical things, one helpful thing is to consider our diet in terms of what we consume of news um, on social media. We, we will always have more of a sense that things are going wrong in the world out there than in the place where we live because, um, as one author I quote says, he's like, out there is much bigger than here where you live. Um, so it can give you an impression that so many things are going wrong because there are so many, you know, places in the world. Um, but actually, because we only ever really report bad news, we do get a skewed perception of the good and bad in the world. So I think we can, what I really want in the book is for us to, um, I'm not trying to prescribe anything really. What I want is for us to kind of uh, notice our, our pessimistic habits of thought and the emotional toll that that's taking and the social toll that that's taking. Um, and I think if we're aware of it, then that kind of gives us the power to say no a bit more to the clickbait and the headlines and the doom scrolling is a term that mm. I saw used recently of Twitter in particular. Um, 
So that's a kind of practical one. I think overall I'd really conclude that your pessimism or your optimism about the future is going to be a function of what you think the world is actually like and what you believe humans are really like. Um, that if you think everything's just an accident and we're um, a species that happened to evolve and at some point we're going to go extinct and that's that's all there is, then there's no real reason to think that things will get better, like totally could go either way, right? Mm. Um, whereas, you know, I'm a Christian, I think that hope is actually part of the deal, like it's built into the fabric of the universe. Justice is built into the fabric of the universe. It's not a thing that we have to um, force, like it's a thing we ought to work towards. But I think that we can do that with confidence that it's going with the grain of things, not just against the grain of things. I hope that reading the book is also an opportunity to think through those things a bit. What do I really think the world is like? Do I believe that it's hopeless? Do I believe that it's hopeful? What does that do for my ability to uh, actually change the future in some way for mm. the better. Well, thank you so much for telling us about the new book. Congratulations, Natasha. Thank you. Thanks for the chat. And maybe just, you know, I mean, not another one next week, you know. Maybe you could wait like three <laughs> weeks before you. I'll, I'll take a break. <laughs> so, Natasha, when we said we'd do a pandemic episode, I was like, oh, but I haven't read anything, right? And then you wouldn't <laughs> believe it. On, I'm doing a big drive and up on Audible Pops, this new story by Carolyn Overington. Have you heard of her? She's like an Aussie. I've heard of her. I haven't read any. Right. So she's a journalist by background mm-hmm. in magazines and print, and she's written a bunch of novels. I've read one or two of hers. And this one called The Cuckoo's Cry is a domestic thriller. It's set in Sydney at the start of the current pandemic, right at the start Ooh. of lockdown. Wow, she really pumped that up quickly. Yeah. So often with the Audible originals, they're a little bit shorter. They're more novellas. Okay. So, um, But basically this stranger, Morgan, who is a 19-year-old, turns up on Don's Bondi doorstep claiming mm-hmm. to be his long-lost granddaughter from, from a, a child that was adopted. Um, and Don actually opens up his heart and his world to this character, Morgan, and the two start spending every minute together in lockdown. And Don's, but did you say it's a thriller? Right. Ooh. So, And Don's been lonely and isolated and he loves Morgan's company because she makes his life fun again. Uh, but Don's daughter, who is a busy restaurateur in the Hunter Valley, and she's a mum of two as well. She's got a lot on her plate and obviously the COVID situation is very challenging for their business. And she is very suspicious of Morgan's motivations and her identity. So from the very beginning, there is this seed of doubt. Is she really who she says she is? What does she want um, from Don? And so, yeah, it's got some interesting themes about loneliness of the elderly, um, the way lockdown made some people more vulnerable, the difficulty of trying to cope with some of the sudden changes of the pandemic while actually trying to protect, you know, older people like Don from the actual virus. Yeah, there's a lot to work with in that, I think, for a thriller. Was it thrilling? You know what? From the outset, this story got me in. It, mm. it really did get me in. And the only thing that I would criticise is for me at the end it sort of goes slightly on a tangent. And I guess often with the Audible Originals, Natasha, because they are churned out quite quickly and they're released quickly and they, they haven't been a book first, yeah, the editing process hasn't been okay. quite as effective. Um, but this is a great – listen, Caroline Overington is a very good storyteller. The one thing I really want to say about this is 
is the performance by the narrator, Amy Horn, is standout good. Like, Ooh, it, she really? is an excellent narrator. She wow. does all the characters beautifully. The way she captures teenage girls speak, you know. Ooh. I mean, you've got to give credit to Caroline Overington for capturing that as well. Yeah, yeah. But the way she delivers it, ah, oh, it's just gold. Every character oh. is perfectly performed. It's Trust a real delight. Trust you to recommend an audiobook. Well, I loved it. Yeah, I loved the <laughs> performance. I absolutely relished it. So well done, Amy Horn, and well done, Caroline Overington as well. In fact, when you read the reviews, Natasha, the consistent theme is, wow, how is this out already in the pandemic? You no, know? Yeah. Like, yeah. So. Capitalising. Quick, quick. Yeah, it's a good effort. So it, it rang true for your experience? You know, we're in Sydney. and Well, I think that's the thing. For those of us in Sydney, it really did ring true. I think people in other parts of the world might find that different because, of course, you know, we still... Um, We've still been able to go to shops and things mm. like that. So it probably is a little bit different to experiences in other parts of the world. I think it was pretty true. It's set in Bondi. And the interesting thing is my um, my husband's grandfather was that old school Bondi, you know, in the old house there. And honestly, the, she got that spot on. They could have been the same <laughs> person. Yeah. Uh-huh. Wow. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, look, that, that I think wraps up our pandemic episode of the Hope Book Club. In this episode, we have reviewed Hamnet by Maggie O'Farrell, Station Eleven by Emily St. John Mandel. We talked about Natasha's new book, The Pleasures of Pessimism, and I reviewed Caroline Overington's The Cuckoo's Cry, an audible original audiobook. So thanks for sticking with the Hope Book Club because life in a pandemic is better with a book. Thanks for listening. Start your day with life words. Subscribe to Hope 1032's free daily email devotional at hope1032.com.au.